Welcome to Booked. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. We're bringing you a special treat tonight. Tonight is going to be the first in a three-part series of live readings from the recent Noir at the Bar uh, book release party down in Corden, Indiana. If anybody thought Rob sounded uncomfortable calling it a treat, as I insisted that we call this a special treat. Yeah, he really was holding a gun. <laughs> <laughs> essentially holding a gun to my head there. Like, how are we going to introduce this? Like, we're, we're going to be, uh, we're going to say that, you know, we were at Noir. No, no, no. People need to know that this is a special treat because when we give you guys a treat, we want you to make sure you're aware that we gave you a treat. No, so there it is. Here's the deal. Like, I, it, it was a treat for me, but that was like a week ago already, or like half a week ago. So, like, it's in the past now. So, like, it doesn't really register to me that someone else has not yet experienced the special treat that we have. So it's tougher for me to stay enthusiastic about it. <laughs> so effectively, you've you've leaned back in your chair. You're just rubbing your belly from the treat at this point. I'm just like, ugh, so good. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so for us, this is Corydon, Indiana, part two, as we were down there um, September. Is that what we decided? September of last year? September of last year. For the uh, Frank Bill release party for his book, Crimes in Southern Indiana. We had such a blast, we decided to do this again when we heard there was going to be another Corydon party. Um, also kind of hosted by Frank Bill, his hometown boy there. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was great that these guys put this together. Um, so what we have for you guys is we have three episodes. Um, so we don't do like two and a half hours of, of you know, of podcast you know for this reading so we have it broken up a little bit we have a total of eight readers this time very very cool stuff yeah glad we uh glad we got to do it and i I really wish we would have had some stuff from september of last year really didn't occur to us until like around the second reading we were going to that it was even you know something that we should do that that someone would let us do let's be honest (laughs) (laughs) but you know we found out (laughs) he sent one message on facebook saying hey we want to record this, and they'll be like, yes, please record it. So, so again, special thanks to Frank Bill and Jed Ayers for, for being courteous enough to let us um, record our venture down there and, and to be able to bring it to um, as many people you know, as, as we can. So very excited about it. Yep. A little bit of housekeeping. Um, this was, like we said, an event for Noir at the Bar Volume 2. Uh, we originally reviewed that book in Episode 109, so not too long ago, and... Um, uh, the book, the history of the book is that Jed Ayers and Scott Phillips host Noir at the Bar. It's a regular reading series in St. Louis. And the books that they put out, Noir at the Bar, the first volume and now volume two, um, all the profits and proceeds or all the extra money besides you know making the book essentially goes towards Subterranean Books, which is an independent bookstore in St. Louis. So it's a good cause and just really a giant stack of good stories. Yeah, we had a lot of fun uh, reviewing that, and uh, I've read through some of the first Noir at the Bar stuff, kind of in passing here and there a little bit. I haven't read it cover to cover, but uh, some really good stuff in there, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Some of the stuff like, uh, you got Richard Thomas, uh, obviously Jed and Scott, Matthew McBride, Frank Bill. I'm sure Matt Funk is in there somewhere. There's, yeah, just a ton of ton of good stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess without further ado, we should actually start talking about the event. Do you want Do you want to talk about some of the stuff that happened outside the event? Or do you want to save that for a little later? Oh, um, some of the weird shenanigans. Weird shenanigans. Let's uh, let's save. It's like a treat within a treat, like Inception levels of treat. Let's do a, oh, Let's do a little bit at the end of the episode. It's gonna be the gooey center. I can't wait. 
All right, so uh, <laughs> ready to kick it off for you. We're going to give you a kind of heads up on who these people are ahead of the actual, um, ahead of what you're going to hear. So um, the intro is by Judd Ayers, uh, who is the MC and has MC'd numerous events that we've been at now, um, Noir at the Bar in St. Louis, um, The Wrong Kind of Reading, which uh, you could hear here, episode 74 through 77. And then uh, what was the what was the episode numbers for Noir at the Bar St. Louis? Uh, 68 through 72. There you go. So he is the most emceed guy on Booked. We've had him MC the most readings. So um, we also had him on for episode 90, where we talked a little bit about the short stories that he wrote that made uh, eventually returned into the movie Fuckload of Scotch Tape, now available on DVD at Amazon.com. And uh, and obviously we reviewed Noir at the Bar 2 very recently. Yep. And what did he read for this? He read a story called The Whole Buffalo, um, uh, an excerpt from it, which uh, originally appeared in Needle Magazine. And um, is exists in his Fuckload of Shorts collection, which uh, I reviewed over at Manarchy Magazine. All right, after Jed, Jed came up, uh, and after he was done, he introduced Carrie Gaffney, who uh, I think via Frank Bill was invited to read at the event, and when she was asked to write something noirish, I think, uh, and you'll you'll hear this in the recording, but essentially, uh, she balked at it and ended up writing somewhat of a nonfiction piece about the idea of writing noir. Yeah, it was kind of a neat little change from from you know the other stories. I, mean, I like the stories and I like the noir feel, but it was funny to have someone who doesn't write noir kind of give you a look at trying to write noir. So. Um, Carrie, as well as one of the other readers that's going to appear in another episode, are uh, both from Second Story, which is a, uh, a group in Indiana that helps, uh, or I'm sorry, a group in Indianapolis that helps um, kids with uh, creative writing. So kind of a cool cause there. Absolutely. And um, our third reader for this episode is Matthew McBride. Um you probably, if you heard the Noir at the Bar 2 review, we talked quite a bit about the Tar Hole, which was just an excellent story out of uh, out of there. And he is actually going to be reading that story um, right here on our show at this reading. So um, if you didn't get the gist of why the Tar Hole is one of the reasons you want to buy Noir at the Bar 2, you'll hear the story in its entirety here shortly at the end of this episode. Yeah, when Jed introduces, and you'll hear this, you'll uh, when Jed introduces Matt, uh, to come up and read he's like i don't know what he's gonna read so it's really a mystery and then right before he jumps into it matt says it's the tar hole and i was just like yes <laughs> but that's like the double-edged kind of thing because uh and i was talking to Olivia about it that night it's great when you hear an author read out loud something that you've read of theirs that you really enjoy because you get to see their take on the emphasis and the different things you know the subtleties but the bad thing is you don't get to read you don't get to hear them read something else that you haven't read yet so it's like eh, it's good it's good and bad it's both good and bad. Mm-hmm. I will tell you this though after hearing his story last year in Corden that he read and then you know reading the tar hole and, and hearing him read it live I'm so excited about reading Frank Sinatra in a blender his upcoming book. Yep, we'll have to do that soon. So we will. So um, without further ado we're going to put you into the readings and uh uh, Book's going to sit back and listen with you guys, and then we'll be back after the readings. Good evening, both of you. Can you hear me right here? You can hear me. You guys aren't drinking, are you? This is like, this is really, 
really subdued. Can you hear me in the back okay? Can you hear me back there? Yeah? Okay. All right, well, welcome to Noir at the Bar. We did this last year at Beefs. It was outdoors, and that was a blast. We had some amazing writers, and we said, let's do it again, but without the amazing writers, and let's get, you know, whoever's hanging around. And uh, so I said, yeah, that'd be awesome. Uh, and it just so happened that uh, we were publishing uh, a second book um, of short fiction featuring people who have come to St. Louis to read at the Noir at the Bar event that I host there. And um, Frank's in it, and David Keaton's in it, and Matt McBride is in it, some people who are here tonight. So um, the only place in the world to pick up both volumes of Noir at the Bar is at a little independent bookstore in St. Louis called Subterranean Books. We printed it. Uh, and sell it there to be a fundraiser for them. And so uh, I'm not making any money on this shit. And certainly nobody who's printed in here is making any money at all. Um, but you've got a unique opportunity tonight to buy these books without having to make the St. Louis trip, because let's face it, that'd be a waste of time. <laughs> Frank's done it like three times, he can tell you. It's. It's miserable. But uh, if you've never been to one of these events before, here's what you can expect. Uh, public nudity, a little bit of vomiting. Um, I understand there may be some weapons discharged tonight, but no fatalities so far. Minor injuries only. Um, we're going to get fairly rowdy with uh, the content and the presentation. And I guess uh, I would tell everybody to speak loudly tonight. Uh, I don't know how well you can hear me, but I seem to hear that lady right over there really well. So uh, anyway, we've got a bunch of readers tonight, a bunch of them. So usually I'd let this you know, go on for a little while, hanging out, getting some beers. And, but I think we ought to get right to it. And since nobody likes to go first, it's a terrible thing to do. I'll just go ahead and uh, break the ice and uh, be the first reader tonight. Um, I got a book of short stories that just came out a couple months ago called A Fuckload of Shorts, which is a, just a classy-ass title. Uh, I haven't even told my parents it's out. Uh, that would be an awkward conversation. I got another book coming out in the spring called Fierce Bitches, and I just don't think I'm going to be able to tell them about that one either. But um, this... Uh, I'm going to read a little section from a story called The Whole Buffalo. Originally appeared in um, Needle Magazine a couple years back. Uh, and it's a really long story, so I'm just going to read a, a little part of it. And um, it's being narrated by uh, an old guy who's a, um, he's a, uh, he lays people to rest. He's a mortician. They have a name for that now. And, um, all we know is he's narrating the story from prison. And uh, so anyway, he is uh, telling the story of this small town that uh, he was the mortician for. And uh, anyway, he's just got, got a new, new business coming to him. Hmm. <clears throat> 
I never wanted the attention, but I'm a good sport. I knew that it was my chance to pump a little money into the tax base of the town. So I played along. I granted interviews, held back some of my best stuff for the local boys, though they were often pretty slow on the uptake, and I had to spoon feed them and answer questions they weren't really asking. I'd like to think that I may be paid for some road work or uniforms for the football team. You can't hardly have a town worth living in around here without a high school football team. Building block of society, really. I was not and am not ashamed of anything I did, but uh, you'd have thought I was a real sicko if the papers were your only source of information. You'd have thought I was some demented old necrophile jack-off, but what it really boiled down to was thriftiness and good business sense. Like the Indians, you know, use the whole buffalo. The other day a reporter asked me, and I couldn't give a grand total. You think I kept books on that? <laughs> no, sir, whatever I may be, stupid is not one of my traits. Though, I've not thought much as to volume. I have wondered occasionally if all the families with junk stored at the stock and lock had any notions that it was hallowed ground they tread, or if they had familial connections to anyone resting in peace behind one of my garage doors. Now that I've got nothing but time on my hands, I suppose I could put my mind to some calculations and arrive at a figure shortly, but it would be approximate, and I will try now that I think of it. Maybe get us a gift shop, build a tourism industry. And what really does wrinkle my scrotum is that nobody would have any problem with the whole affair if it weren't for that insufferable bitch, Susie Dross. That uptight boner killer nearly took down the whole town in the end. Just about killed it as surely as if she'd set a fire or used an atom bomb. I was the one who finally put an end to the old biddy, humanely even, much better than she deserved. And did I get a medal? <laughs> Let's just say none of us get what we deserve. Susie Dross had a husband, you might say, though I wouldn't. I've been one before, and let me tell you, any emasculation I may have suffered at the hands of my various exes would merely feel like tight pants compared to the continual and public nut fling Herbert Dross took up as his daily cross. She may have well kept his testes tied to either end of a baton and twirled the motherfucker in front of a brass band everywhere they went together. He may have had his esophagus clawed out of his neck by a pack of wild dogs that ran wild in the woods on the south side of town, but I haven't ruled out suicide. I don't know what exactly you'd call that relationship, but marriage just doesn't seem right. Anyway, after the attack, Susie brings her funeral business my way, and I really thought about turning her down at the outset. I didn't, because that's not something I've made a practice of in 30 years as service as a mortician. Donnelly Funeral Home is laid to rest St. Thomas's dead for most of 100 years now. And when I bought out the Donnelly family back in 1978, They'd been the first and most trusted name in death care in all of Hamilton County, and they didn't accomplish that by turning away clients based on personal dislike. So one night as I'm standing over the sink with my microwaved enchiladas, not even thinking about how empty the house is these days, there's a knock at the door, which I'm accustomed to. I suck the insides out the back end where they're threatening to drip, set down my dinner on a paper plate nearly transparent with grease, suck my fingertips and wipe them on my pants, donning my black jacket as I go for the front entrance. My stomach drops into my gonads when I see it's Susie Dross, all barely composed and puffy on my doorstep. Good evening, Mrs. Dross. I say, like she were any other human person I might have reason to see at my house. No. No, Mr. Wainscott is not. She sniffles a bit and touches a well-used kerchief to her face. Herbert. And she breaks into a fit of tears as violent as it is short. I stand solemnly, quiet before her, waiting for the news. Mr. Joss has been killed this very evening. 
and she waits there for me to supply the appropriate professional, if not personal, condolences. Good for him, is my first thought. I can't believe he lasted this long, is my second. I'm sorry for your loss, is what pours from my lips, like some automaton set perpetually on polite. I hold open the door, and she enters. I, head her, I lead her to the consultation room just off the vestibule, straight ahead as you enter. Features decor the very substance of sobriety and sincerity, picked out by Tamara Donnelly, grandmother to those I bought the place from all those years ago. It's been a good choice to leave it alone and not redecorate, as each one of my wives has encouraged me to over the years. People seem to find something reassuring in the old-fashioned look of the place. I often think, as I lead the grieving into this 19th century time warp, how shocked most of their delicate sensibilities would be. They knew the acts committed upon the furniture on which they now rest. I can't speak for the Donnellys, but it's been my experience that the dark tones of the wood paneling and carpet and the dim lighting have remained there just as much to cover various stains crusted into the fibers and left on the walls as to assure them they are in the best and most respectful of understanding hands. In this very room, my first wife and I used to throw parties with couples from out of town, cool little get-togethers with costumes and coke. And there'd be all manner of role play and experimentation. We were always careful not to include locals, because you never know who's going to get the heebie-jeebies discussing the details of a loved one's funeral, sitting upon the very co couch they watched you porker on, wearing the bunny ears. Learned a lot about ourselves as a couple and individuals, which I always thought was a good thing, but there was a... But that was where I just saw the world different from Joni. Eventually, something really freaked her out, got her permanently out of the mood and into the booze. She sulked and cussed me good and took to saying some pretty hurtful things on a pretty regular basis. I told her finally to cut that shit out, and she was ready to. I think she joined a cult or something. Susie Dross has recovered her composure by the time I placed the lacquered tissue box on the solid oak coffee table in front of her. The sturdiness of the furniture is another reason I've not redecorated. You come to appreciate good craftsmanship after collapsing a couple Ikea pieces of crap just trying to get your knob polished. She seemed completely back to her old stern self, just as I was getting this over with. Mr. Wayne Scott, my husband deserves the very best. A martyr's remembrance is what I think. And I expect you'll not take his meager pension into consideration when you make your recommendations for the service. I can tell she's really going to get off on her new opportunity to suffer nobly. You needn't worry about such things. If he's only left me enough to cover the ceremony, I'm sure that God has put that there before me for a reason. She just can't resist taking digs at him, even in her grieving. He never made enough money, is what I'm supposed to hear. So I'm perfectly capable of fending for myself in his absence, the way I've had to my whole life. The blame really is on me for marrying a man of such low quality and character as not to care to enough to provide better for me, and then just check out and leave me with nothing. I squeeze my fists a couple of times just to get some tension out. She bothers me. She senses the devil about me. I know from loose talk I've picked up from other clients over the years. Plus those fiery editorials she prints in the papers have made it pretty clear the type of people who are in her contempt. St. Thomas is a pretty small town though, and unless she wants to drag her ass with the broom handle poking out over the state line and create a whole lot more hassle and paperwork and legalities, Donnelly Funeral Home will be providing her the sensible, assuring, and steady support she'll need to weather this storm. Mrs. Dross, let me assure you that I take this period in a family's life very seriously and would suggest in your case, just as in every case brought before me, modesty in scale and arrangement. 
I can see that she wants me to notice her irritation at this remark. Nobody comes in asking for the cheapest crate we got, and I'm glad enough to play this role and offend their pride until they come around to my reasoning. Before she can offer a token rebuttal, I continue, Franklin, Mrs. Dross, nothing speaks of a guilty conscience louder than a garish funeral. Just like the most elaborate weddings always produce the shortest marriages. People see through that, and I know that that is not the impression you would want them to have. Certainly, I'm not suggesting that a guilty conscience resides in you, but I am quite serious when I say that that is how it will look if you insist on silk pillows, printed announcements, or other silly ornamental things just because some huckster with a black suit and a pinched sincerity about him says it's the best. She sits there with both hands and gloves that nearly reach her elbows, pressed tightly between her thighs, which are quivering just a little bit under the strain of composure. And it reminds me of this oriental chick who sat right there once in the same spot with exactly the same posture, except the gloves was the only thing she was wearing. It's spooky, really, these little coincidences in life. It has me wondering if Mrs. Drouse is leaving a damp spot on the chair like old Miss Saigon did. Somehow, I doubt it. What I don't doubt is that if there's anyone in St. Thomas who could pick up the acrid scent of the chair beneath the basic aroma of the house, it's Susie Dross. She looks up finally, which, if she were Oriental, I'd take the mean she'd finished peeing, and says, you are the professional here, Mr. Wainscott. Herbert is only the first husband I have lost. I will take your opinion under advisement. I will insist, however, upon an open casket. And it gets much worse from there. Okay, so now that I have gone first, and everybody's hopefully here, uh, I've got, this is who's reading tonight, and I washed my hands a minute ago, and that was a bad idea. Um, but uh, several people that I know from uh, reading in, in St. Louis, uh, Frank Bill, David Keaton, uh, Matthew McBride, and others I know online or from reading their books, uh, and I'm just really excited about this lineup. I do have a couple of newcomers that I am really excited to hear about. I was talking to Carrie Gaffney earlier and Lou Perry, both of, from Indianapolis. They do an event there called Second Story, uh, uh, which sounds like a blast. Um, I'll have to make my way out to Indianapolis and check that out sometime. But I'm going to ask Carrie to come up next. Uh, she's got... Uh, something nobody else here tonight is going to have, I believe, a piece of nonfiction, which I always find much easier to make up than fiction. Uh, anyway, Carrie Gaffney. Hi, am I the only girl here? Okay. So Frank asked me to read. Hi, I'm Carrie. Frank asked me to read, and um, I worked really hard on a noir piece. But what ended up uh, coming out was an essay entitled, When I Knew I Sucked at Noir. <laughs> <laughs> writing noir. I started by doing what I assume most creative writers do when they start a new project. I Google noir writing prompts to see what comes up. It turns out the internet is no help with regard to noir writing prompts. And as I am still fuzzy on what would make something I'd write noir exactly, I do the next best thing. I Facebook my friend, Richard, who writes noir and horror and all kinds of twisted shit, and say, hey, send me a noir prompt. 
I need to write something dark and sinister. He responds, three things, dark alley in a big city, woman in trouble who is not what she seems. There must be one act of violence or sex or violent sex. Okay, so a woman who is not, it was not as she seems and who may or may not be in trouble. I mean, really, are we all distressed dames? A dark alley in a big city, sex or violence or both. The hint of a protagonist emerges in my mind, the shadow of a woman. My mind flashes to the crime dramas of my youth, before all the characters carried iPads and enlisted the help of quirky, goth-looking hackers to help them find the bad guys. Maybe my character is someone I could find in an episode of Murder, She Wrote, an aging, alcoholic, Broadway actress with a gambling habit and a thin, greasy boyfriend who has shifty eyes and a Lonnie Anderson lookalike he fucks on the side, which would have to be implied, of course, because no one fucked on TV in the 80s. Maybe my character, I'll call her Iris, because that's the name of all my fictional female characters until one of my shitty stories gets published, will be all ginned up and walking down a New York City alley, and she'll catch her boyfriend and Lonnie Anderson in a suspicious embrace and go all batshit on both of them. Except, let's face it, the 80s weren't sexy. I've seen steamier embraces between Hannah Montana and her dad, country music badass Billy Ray Cyrus, than I remember seeing on the 80s crime dramas. And what about the outfits back then? The women's sweaters had shoulder pads in them and their pants were all pleated. Come to think of it, the only episode of Murder, She Wrote I actually remember is the one where Jessica Fletcher got pushed down the stairs or something and was in a coma and I secretly wished she wouldn't wake up so I could stop watching that damn show at my grandma's house every Sunday before 60 Minutes. What about a Jessica Rabbit or Madonna Breathless Mahoney type? Could my Iris be like one of them, a low-level performer with a propensity for dark men? Certainly both of those women were hotter than Angela Lansbury. And Warren Beatty still kind of works for me, even though he's old. So what if Iris is in the alley to pick up steroids for her ailing voice, or maybe some amphetamines to keep her skinny like her man likes her? Or maybe she's getting tossed around by some smarmy manager who's making her do nasty things to get ahead in the world. And a tough exterior but soft-hearted Warren Beatty guy intervenes and tell her, tells her she's better than her addiction, and she's so turned on by his vulnerability she starts taking her clothes off, because if she's modeled after, after Jessica Rabbit or Breathless Mahoney, she's bound to be a freaky bitch. But I don't like that version either. That overt come-hither sexuality makes me a little nervous, truth be told. Maybe it's because of who I am as a person, but I think I'd have trouble conjuring an iris who is more than there's something a little intriguing about the librarian sexy. Maybe iris could be a high-class call girl. In my real life, our neighborhood has a bit of a prostitution issue, so I feel like I would be able to draw on some true life experience to guide the scene. A sinister variation of that time my husband inadvertently solicited a hooker when he motioned her to cross the street as he tried to make a left turn. That was fucking hilarious. <laughs> so I put Iris, he's here. Um, so I put Iris, the hooker, in a dark big city alley to see what kind of violent or sexy hijinks might ensue. The biggest problem with that version of Iris is that when I picture her in my mind's eye, she looks nothing like the woman 
uh, I, I want her to be. She looks like a crack whore. Unshowered, wearing sweatpants, pale, painfully thin, and with a face so devoid of any softness, I wonder if she ever had a soul. What's the fun in writing that, Iris? She's not sexy or violent. She's just sad. How does a woman become a hoe bag without being sad? What makes damaged people worth rooting for? Is my problem that I'm coming at this story through the eyes of the woman and I'm a one myself? I Google prototypical femme fatale to see if I get any assistance. A 1947 movie entitled Out of the Past pops up along with the picture of a guy in a trench coat and a hat, a cigarette dangling from his mouth. Behind him stands a woman with dark wavy hair, wine red lips. Her lips are close to his ear. The photo is captioned, the tough hero who's doomed for the love of the wrong woman, the treacherous femme fatale who double crosses every man she meets. Nightclubs, jazz, bright lights, dark shadows, dialogue that sounds like pulp poetry. Perhaps I'm overthinking things. I think about that time I read Inherent Vice by, Tom by Thomas Pynchon for a, for a grad class and thought it was the stupidest fucking thing I'd ever picked up until my douchebag professor enlightened me about how, how all the lesbian sex scenes were not for male gratification at all, but were meant to empower women. It is possible this prompt is difficult because I go through this life and it's a good life, full of sunny days and soccer games, as the mild-mannered, soft-featured den mother when my heart is really a big city, dark alley. In the end, I decide I want my protagonist to remain female. I rename her Claudia. She's young, just 20, and she works part-time as a receptionist in a dental office. But her real job is as a fetish escort. She meets a guy named Gil whose fetish is making Claudia strip naked and behave as though she's a dog. She does things like drink red wine from a dog dish, and she even offers to roll on her back and give him a submissive pee for an extra 50 bucks, which he declines because he's too civilized. Anyway, Gil is murdered in his office and the police find Claudia's phone number written in permanent marker on the tag of his zebra-striped underwear. Even though the story is right now set in a college town where I thought Claudia might be more likely to encounter happily married, soft-handed guys with fucked up secrets, so far the story itself is dirty, uncomfortable, and according to my friend Richard, the guy who sent me the original prompt, pretty noir. When I figure out how to work her into a dark alley, maybe I'll read it for you. Thanks. And now I know why I suck at writing noir. <laughs> Did I mention thanks for coming out to Abigail's birthday party? Did I say that? Fifteen? If you were here last year, uh, you caught Mr. Matthew McBride reading a story called Big Darlene, the Sex Machine. And I put him next to last because nobody wants to fucking follow Matt McBride. Nobody does. Uh, he's got a n novel coming out uh, next month. 
next month? In a few weeks, called Frank Sinatra in a Blender, which is the fucking awesomest title since, you know, fuckload of shorts. And he's, uh, he's just an amazing discovery. I feel like I've, I've I, I, I like to take as much credit for him as I can. I, he, he doesn't really owe me anything, but uh, he came out and read Edouard at the bar uh, before this book was out, before, um, you know, before he had an agent, before, yeah, before he was out of uh, sixth grade. And that was, that was awesome. But tonight, I'm going to have him go early in the lineup just because, you know, I really hate the guy who's following him. So <laughs> I'm not sure what he's reading tonight. He does have a story. He's got, he's got fantastic stories in both of these. But I've got to say, his story, The Tar Hole, in Noir at the Bar, Volume 2, is just, just one of, probably my favorite thing I've ever read of his. Uh, so, of course, he's not going to read that tonight. But uh, anyway, Matthew McBride. <laughs> Frank Sinatra and a Blender, by the way, you have copies for sale tonight? They are not available for weeks, but he has got a handful of copies tonight. And I will be very disappointed if I hear he went home with any. All right, thanks, man. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? What's up, Frank? Frank and I have the same agent. All right, yeah. Um, <laughs> I guess I'm just going to get to it. Um, it's called The Tar Hole. The first memories of my dad were seeing him come home late at night with bloodstains on his shirt and punch my mom for letting his dinner get cold. Dad would scream at Mom and throw his bottle against the wall and make her pick up the pieces. He would eat cold meat and then drag her down the hall by her arm and shove her head to the bed, make the old box springs bounce while he told her she was pretty. Mom sounded like she was hurt, but my brother said she wasn't. He said that's what people did when they was grown. We grew up poor on a dirt road by the river. I had two brothers and a sister and a mom who did not love us as much as she loved herself and a dad who loved the bottle more than he loved my mom. We grew crops in the dirt patch between the barn and the chicken house, and some years they yielded a harvest, but most years they didn't. When they did, my mom hid the money from my dad, or he would leave for work on Friday and come home on Sunday, dirty and broke, with the stench of someone else on his shirt collar. I learned early on dad loved his bottle more than he loved the rest of us. We grew up hard and raised ourselves, did the best we could with what we had. As the years went by, I found myself alone, which was fine by me. I had a place outside of town and I kept to myself, unless I was conducting business. I had just walked in the bedroom of my rundown mobile home and sat on the bed and removed my left boot when the phone rang. I shook my head in frustration and with great reluctance answered, knowing it was the nursing home where I'd stuck my dad and knowing whatever reason they had for calling was a bad one. I knew Dad wasn't dead. That was impossible. A man like Dad would not die on his own. None of his surviving broad could get that lucky. Sir, we're calling to let you know we'll be discharging your father this evening. Why, I asked. He's only been there a week. There was silence on the other end. I'm afraid it's just not working out. Not working out? No, sir, not really. What's not working out? 
I'm not sure where to begin, but every day there's something new. I gritted my teeth and shook my head. What's the old man done now? I'd, she paused. I'd rather not go into that. Listen here, I've been working all day and I'm about worn out. She began, it's just, I don't know how to say it. Say what? What's the old man done this time? Sir, he was masturbating in his catheter. What? <laughs> Among other things. But this was the final straw. I could picture that nurse. She was a large woman with a broad face and small lips caked with red paint. You're kicking him out for that? Mr. Ramsey, I'm sorry, but we cannot control him. He's been warned a dozen times. Warned? Yes, sir, a dozen times. I sat on the edge of my bed, wearing a single boot, and held the phone away from me like it might be contagious. I can't believe you're kicking him out for that. She cleared her throat uncomfortably. <clears throat> well, that's, that's not all. He's been stealing, and he's combative. We're not equipped to deal with a man like that. He's been violent toward one of our residents, and violent, I interrupted. Toward who? Hang on, sir, I'm not finished. He was violent toward another resident twice. He threatened to beat this man with his walker. And then we found what looks like methamphetamine. She paused. He'd been hiding it. Meth? I stood quickly and stumbled over my boot. That old bastard. This was his third nursing home in a month. I lived in a small town and we were running out of nursing homes. Sir, we don't really know what it is, but we're supposed to report this kind of thing to the law and all. Surely you understand. Just hang on there a minute, toots. He's an old man. You can't just throw him out. And we're not, Mr. Ramsey. We're discharging him this evening. That's why I'm calling. I had not slept in days. I'd been out gathering pills, smurfing, driving from one store to another, collecting pseudo. Pseudoephedrine was our family's business, and since both of my brothers were gone, I was the man in charge. Something you'd think would make a dad like ours proud, though it hadn't. I hung up the phone and grabbed my boot and walked to the top drawer of the filing cabinet where I kept my supply. There was a half gram of dope missing. The old man must have taken it the night before when I brought him back to my place for dinner, which hadn't been much because I don't have a wife or a girlfriend and I can't cook worth a damn and neither can he. So we ate frozen White Castle and drank beer and smoked pot. It was a fine meal, but a poor excuse for a relationship. Still, it was the best I could hope for, considering the circumstances. But at some point, the old man must have rolled back to my bedroom and rummaged through my stash. He took everything I had, too. That's my old man for you, and that's one more reason why I had to do what I had to do. I left the trailer in my old Chevy, a 76 with two-tone yellow and white paint and floorboards eaten through with rust, but she still pulled strong, and the holes in the floor came in handy when I was running crank and got pulled over and had to drop my product on the road. I rooted through the ashtray and found a roach joint of medium length and relit the smashed blackened end and puffed and drove and thought about what I should do. My old man was a real dandy, but I could not bring myself to kill him. Though the idea had been discussed many times between my brothers and I, and while none of us were opposed to the idea, I was and still am the only Ramsey not currently incarcerated. As usual, the burden of dealing with the old man would fall on me. I thought about my life as I drove to town. Hog Trough Road was a buffet of potholes and ruts. The bed liked to fell off my truck when I bounced through a washboard, but I thought about my dad and his future and what might be the best way to kill him. No one would blame me, 
even the law would be glad he was dead. Dad had raped and killed our sister when she was 12, and he'd spent just enough time in Algoa to forget it had happened. He'd blamed it on a drifter, and he never said he did it, but he never said he didn't. Growing up, I'd barely known him. Then our mom ran off with a red-winged boot salesman, and my brother went to jail. While I waited, I quit school and mowed lawns and sold weed. Then my other brother taught me to make crank, and it was a moment that defined me. The two of us in gas masks in the loft of Dad's old barn. Those memories were powerful and strong, and I pushed them down in the basement of my mind and threw a board over the hole. But then my brother got too confident and blowed up a lab and melted off his face in a chemical flash. He's in a special unit down at Farmington in the nut house. Once he lost his face, he lost a lot more than that. Whatever man had been my kin was gone. And then one day, after many years and several failed parole hearings, Dad was a free man, but he was old, too old to take care of himself. And what was done was done, though I could not forgive him, none of us could. It was just a matter of time. I would find some way to end him and do my brothers and myself and even my dead sister, along with the law and everyone else at the nursing home, a favor. I would do what should have been done 35 years ago when we put my sister in the ground. When we was kids, we ran in the big field behind our home, played hide and seek behind the barn and in the banks of the creek bed that fed Valentine Ford. But one day, when it was my turn to hide, I ran below the chicken house where dad did his butchering and I was as quiet as I could be. Then I saw my pop lay my sister on the ground and lie beside her and he touched her in a way that he ought not to, a way that even as a child I knew was wrong. Then he whispered in her ear, though what I will never know and have always wondered. My heart was filled with a sickness that day that I have not felt since. My blood was thick and black, like motor oil. I could feel it and smell it running inside me. That's what I thought blood was, motor oil. The old man was a mechanic and I'd watched him a thousand times spent my whole life watching him. Dad would drain the oil from the blocks when they were shot, just before he broke them down and rebuilt them. But that image stayed with me, broken machines, bleeding oil in the dirt. My dad with a cigarette clench between his teeth and a schlitz in his, his grease-stained hand, the radio in the background playing oldies. As I stood bewildered, my brother yelled my name, and I looked down at Dad, and he looked up at me. And that was the last innocent moment of my life. I swallowed as much puke as I could and ran and set my mind never to tell my mother or my brothers or anyone else what I'd seen, though it was not long before those thoughts betrayed me. That was not the kind of secret a boy could keep. My dad began to beat me after that. He'd always beaten my oldest brother and had only recently begun to beat my younger brother. Now he was beating me. How that old son of a bitch had the energy to beat the three of us, I'll never know, but he did hard and often, but once he had his way with our sister, we knew dad would have to go. And then, before we could kill him, my sister disappeared, and every part of my life began to unravel, until days passed and weeks became months, and all of that is a blur to me, even now, until that third day of March, when the snow melted and two men cutting wood found what was left of her body beside a sycamore tree, but coyotes and beavers had eaten off everything above the neck and below the waist. Mom recognized her backpack. So did I. It was black with a pink giraffe. 
we had a small trailer growing up, and I remember that night the sheriff came to our place with a deputy and stepped uneasily on our front porch, careful not to fall through the weak spots Dad had promised to fix but had not gotten around to. Mrs. Ramsey, he said, and proceeded to give her the news. A neighbor had seen my dad walk into the woods with my sister below Soap Creek. He thought they had been hunting. But then dad came out by himself. My sister never did. The sheriff asked my mom where dad was. Drinking, uh-huh, sheriff said. No whereabouts. Why are you asking? Cause ma'am, we found sperm stains on her t-shirt and I got a bad feeling. Don't you? Mama said she did without saying she didn't and the sheriff shrugged and tipped his head and left. My mom slammed the door and cursed my dad and left for two days. She went to her sister's or her boyfriend's. So it was just me and my brother when he was there and my miserable father when he wasn't. Then mom came home and they took dad away and I did not see him again until I was grown. I picked him up from Algoa in my truck and the first thing he did was complain about the rust. Then he asked me if I brought any beer. Then he asked me if I had any crank. What do you know about crank, old man? He said he got a taste inside. Big Ray Hall had seen to that. Ray Hall was a prison guard with the right connections. Sometimes he brought stuff in. Everybody knew about crank. Even my old man had been doing it while he was locked up. He'd been doing the same crank behind bars that me and my brothers helped manufacture. And when I told dad we'd made the very product he'd grown so fond of, he nodded like he already knew and asked me again if I'd brought any with me. Dad only lasted three days at my place before I lost whatever feelings of sentimentality I'd had. I told him he would have to leave. The replace is better equipped to deal with a man like him. But this place, I'd said, my place, was not one of those places. So I found a nursing home down the road willing to accept him despite his past reputation. But they threw him out the first day when they caught him stealing pills from the med room. The second home kept him for a week until they talked to the first home. Then they checked Dad's room and found a few pills he'd managed to get his hands on, though how they did not know. They kept the meds locked up tight, but somehow Dad, in a tribute to his craftiness, managed to find a way in there, or maybe he'd swiped them from his roommate. It didn't matter. They threw him out the next day when he shit himself, once he realized he did not have to get up. He could just lie there in his filth and wait for the girls to clean him. When they did, they found undigested pills in his movement and realized where he'd been hiding them. Dad smiled, told them some habits was hard to break, but they didn't care. They kicked him out anyway. Which brings me to home number three and the awkward position Dad had put me in. I pulled up to Freen Valley Healthcare and Dad was out front in his wheelchair, a scowl on his face and a clear bag of dark fluid attached to a cord. It looked like a tentacle and disappeared beneath his gown. I parked my truck and walked up to Dad and opened his door. When I asked him if he needed any help, he asked me for a cigarette and handed me that bag of piss. Dad was a real charmer, and I knew I would not miss him. Nobody would. I drove him out of town to Osage County. He never asked where we was going, and I never told him. I just drove and thought and wondered why life was so hard and what I had done to deserve this. There were a few warm stags behind Dad's seat that he'd been nursing. We rode the whole way in silence, which suited me, made what I knew I had to do that much easier. I'd been preparing for this day my whole life. In some ways, so would he. Once the sun was gone and the night had enveloped us, 
I turned on a gravel road that led to more gravel roads, and the first time Dad spoke, it was to tell me his bag had overflowed and there was piss on my seat cover. I cursed him as we made our way to the, to the tar hole. It was an ancient clay pit with four steep walls that grew from pitch black water of unfathomable depth. The tar hole was the burial ground for a hundred years worth of collectibles. There were cars and trucks and tractors, even people who sank to whatever bottom waited all those feet below its dark surface. Donald Brandt, the man who taught my brother to cook dope, stole a tractor trailer from a truck stop once, and after cleaning out its contents, drove both the tractor and trailer into the hole where it disappeared forever in a thunderous flash and a long hiss and a cloud of boiling steam. I parked and got Dad out, but I forgot about the bag. When I set him down, it snagged on the window crank and ripped the catheter from his urethra. <laughs> Dad howled in maddening pain, and I apologized, though I knew it lacked conviction. Dad screamed and cursed and reached for his bag, but he never spilled a drop of stag. Calm down, old man. Dad put his head down as I wheeled his chair up a small path of red dirt and tree roots and the occasional beer can. Dad kept quiet as I pushed him, held his hand over his groin, and the red spot at the end of his pee hole grew in all directions. There was a small piece of moon that hung above us like a child's toenail. The light it gave was dim. The air was rank and foul, like every living thing within a hundred miles had chosen this place to die. I pushed the old man to the top of the bluff, and he never said a word. He sat quietly and bled. I thought I heard him cry, but I knew better. I wanted to say I'm sorry, but I wasn't. My sister had been raped and beaten and left in the mud, her body ravaged by animals. They could not say how she'd died. I asked if he was ready, and he nodded. He never said he was sorry, just that it was about goddamn time. I put my boot to the back of his chair and shoved him over the edge. The sounds he made as his wheelchair plunged toward the dark water below were beautiful. Thanks. Happy birthday, Abigail. Holy shit! I, if anybody else needs to exclaim, just go ahead and work that out. All right, there we go. We just got done listening to Jed Ayers, Carrie Gaffney, and Matthew McBride. I really, I can't get over how much I dig that story, the tar hole. It, it's it's not just that it's a great story. I think McBride's delivery was just perfect. Was just spot on with it. Yeah, he really brings it, and he's he's uh, very understated person it seems like mm-hmm. he's not he's not the outgoing you know very loud boisterous type he's he seems much more reserved and i think to a degree that really kind of helped with the way because because he brought a very like somber seriousness to the story that mm-hmm. was just perfect absolutely he's the anti-david james Keaton. he <laughs> exactly <laughs> all right yeah and then talking a little bit about Carrie Gaffney and her nonfiction piece. Um, not only was she the only female there, but she she performed that nonfiction piece and uh, just really really good. I guess we get so steeped in reading a lot of this, you know, crimey noiry stuff that you don't really ever take a step back and look at it the way she did. And I thought that was just so refreshing and fun to listen to. Yeah, totally. And she she has a friend named Richard. She does. I wonder who that could be. I don't know. We have a couple. We have a friend named Richard too, and we were speculating during that event whether it was the same Richard or not. Yeah. 
I'm going to go with yes. It is. We know it is. Yeah, we know it is. So. <laughs> and then uh, Jed Ayers, that excerpt from The Whole Buffalo, was, was terrific. Now, here's the problem. If you go with Rob and he's read something he really enjoyed, he was he was across the table, but I could see him visually like nudging me during the good parts from <laughs> having true. read it. <laughs> so, yeah. If I was sitting any closer, he'd have been kicking me and being like, see, see? <laughs> so. <laughs> That's right. You hadn't read the buckload of shorts uh, mm-hmm. going into this. Yep. So... Um, but yeah, again, on my list, that's going to be Liv's Lunches for probably about two weeks. It's just a great collection of shorts. Jed, you know, like, that dude just brings it. Um, and he brings it, he he does really re- original stuff. It's not just the same, you know, guy with a gun and a, you know, femme fatale thing over and over again. He he hits you with a variety. I, I like his stuff a lot. Yeah, hits you with a baseball bat in some stories. Yeah, literally. Yeah, so, so. So that's uh that's part one of our Noir at the Bar Corydon readings. Um, if you uh, enjoyed this reading, please come back tomorrow and check out Noir at the Bar Corydon too, or check out any of our other readings. Hey, wait, weren't we going to talk about some shenanigans before we uh we cut off for this? Oh yeah, you know it's like I don't think the people can understand exactly how haunted the hotel we stayed in is because <laughs> I've tried to tell this story to a couple people and I kind of get like a vague look like. You guys are just boneheads. But no, the hotel we stayed in, Baymont Inn. Baymont Suites? Baymont Suites. Baymont Inn and Suites, I think. Well, see, there you go. I don't um, think we didn't get a suite. No, we didn't. It wasn't, it wasn't that sweet. <laughs> even though we were respected members of the media. Yeah, minor celebrities even around those parts, yeah. I think. So, um, yeah, we don't we don't get the, uh, the Aaron Moran treatment. <laughs> um, our hotel, totally haunted. Numerous instances while we were there. Nothing really overt, like no, uh, you know, like I didn't wake up and the bed was spinning in the air or anything. But there was a there was a sign that changed kind of whenever it wanted to. We both were able to verify. There was a little poltergeist activity in the room too. There was a, at one point one of the complimentary shampoos had got kind of hurled across the bathroom, um, in an unexplainable way. Yeah, and then there was the clock. But to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> the clock might have been us, so maybe we'll talk a little bit about the clock situation in one of the other episodes. <laughs> but for sure, that without question, the sign. Now this, and we're not talking about the hotel room was haunted. The sign was right outside the elevator. So when you got off the elevator, the first thing you see is a sign that you know tells you which rooms are in which direction. Uh, should I go into the whole thing, Livius? Sure. Yep. So we get to court in Indiana. It's nighttime. It's well, it's not even nighttime. It's probably like you know five o'clock in the afternoon and it's before the event so we're going to check into the hotel get settled in and then head over for some good readings we uh we're on the third floor so we take the elevator up and the elevator doors open and we see signs saying that there's uh for rooms 300 through 314 go one way and for 315 through three whatever the rest of it to go the other way and we were 306 so we followed the sign pointing us toward you know the lower numbers And as we're walking, the numbers are going up beyond 315. And I'm like, hey, I think we're going the wrong direction. I think the sign was wrong. And, uh, you know, so we turned around and we went the opposite way of what the sign said. Yeah, we we verified. So we stopped at the sign again. So we both saw the sign, agreed that we should go to the left at that point. Stopped back at the sign, looked, and verified the sign was wrong. Yeah. And then we moved on, found our hotel room uh, um, the opposite way the sign said we should have. And we went inside, got settled in, 
then the bathroom threw a bottle of shampoo at me. <laughs> that might that minor issue. So <laughs> So we joke about it and, and about the sign and you know stopping to tell the hotel people to fix the sign and mine just wasn't a handwritten sign. This was like embossed and mounted to the wall. Yeah, okay, it's so one of those like, like yeah. plastic formed kind of mm-hmm. you know. So we go on, we go to the reading, we stop, have a really nice uh, late night uh, Waffle House dinner. Um, we come back. Well, the hotel's non-smoking, as apparently all of Indiana is now. So I, you know, I tell Rob, "Hey, I'm going to hang outside and, and have a cigarette before we, you know, we call it a night." So uh, yeah, I guess you tell him this part because you're, you're, this is your kind of hearsay at this point. So Livius sticks around down, at, you know, outside, and I say, "Oh, you know, I'm just going to head up into the room." So by myself, I go, you know to in the hotel and I go to the elevator and I uh, go up the elevator come out on the third floor and the sign is still wrong so I you know obviously I know where the room is so I just go in the room and I'm getting settled in and everything and then Livius comes up yeah so I come up and you know Rob apparently you know knew which way to go but I let the elevator doors open and I look at the sign and I immediately go the wrong way so the opposite way of the way the sign's telling me because i know the sign is wrong and as i'm walking you know towards room 315 to whatever expecting to find my room the numbers are going up so i go oh, i must have looked at the sign wrong again so i stop in front of the sign again and verify that the sign is now correct the sign that was wrong earlier that i looked at twice is no longer that sign the sign is pointing in the correct direction so i get into the room and i say to rob i go I go, dude, that's kind of crazy. I think they actually fixed the sign. He's like, what are you talking about? I said, the sign's correct. He's like, dude, I came up 10 minutes ago and looked at the sign. The sign is still wrong. (laughs) Yeah, so kind of weird, unexplainable. And then um, I guess the final note about the story or or the the sign is that um, the next morning when we're going down to check out, we're leaving the hotel, uh, the sign was right. Yeah. So, so one of one of two things happen. So either the hotel is haunted, my vote, or around midnight on a Saturday night, someone from the hotel came and put up the sign that was right. It would have been in that 10-minute period between Rob going upstairs and the time it took me to have a cigarette and get upstairs. Yeah, and the way that that one lady was folding sheets in the hotel lobby, I don't think she had any time to go fix any signs. Yeah, like all over the breakfast tables. It yeah. was a little weird. It's kind of like, I think it's... By virtue of the fact that she was probably the only person there, but also needed to man the front desk. Well, yeah, because they don't have any other employees, because they all left because the place is fucking haunted. So, <laughs> at so any rate. We might, uh, so that's that's the start of the Hotel is Haunted story. We might hit you with a uh, clock, a haunted clock story in a, in a future episode. <laughs> all right, until our next reading episode, I'm Livia Snudden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading. Came up behind me, grabbed my wrist in the dark, and said,